Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. I am your host, Tyson Popplestone. This is episode 201 of the Relaxed Running Podcast, which, to be completely honest, blows my mind saying that that time has gone incredibly quickly. This morning, I was reflecting on some of my favorite podcast episodes of all time. And I tell you, there's a lot of them. I mean, there's a couple that I didn't really enjoy, but from 200, I would say 98% of them have been an absolute blast. (laughs) I hope you guys feel that same ratio is true for you. So today, I thought what I would do, for those of you who are new or those of you who haven't heard every single episode, I thought I might offer a little bit of food for thought with some of the highlight clips from some of my own personal podcast episodes. Now, Obviously, I couldn't include all my favorite parts because the podcast would have gone for four days, which is too long for a podcast. So here are six or seven clips from my favorite podcast episodes, kickstarting kickstarting the show with 10,000 meter champ from here in Australia, Mr. Patrick Tien. And this is 170 or episode 170, where he's navigating his way through injury and talking about the importance of structure both in when dealing with injury and dealing with creating an effective running training program. So let's get this party started celebrating 200 episodes with Mr. Patrick Tiernan. It's so true. It's one thing that I didn't realize how much I missed when I was just doing the style of training I was telling you about before, the jogs, the yoga, the gym, because I would just get up and whatever I felt like doing that day, I would do. And it might be three days of gym and then three days of running. But then getting back into that structured element of like, all right, I'm going to run on these days. It's going to be a session here. That scaffold for your week, it's, I, I forgot how beneficial that was just to not only your fitness, yeah. but just your, your mindset, like to be able to get up in the morning and go, all right, today's this specific kind of day. You can get yourself prepped a little bit, something that I underestimated. So yeah, I can imagine just having that structure in place, even through an injury is really important because it's, I, I don't know what it is. Like I'm not a hundred percent sure what it is, but I used to find that when I was at uni and I had nothing on during a day your mind would start wandering, you'd start getting bored, you'd start, I don't know, I just maybe I was a little bit restless. But then when you had certain things in place that just had to get done on those days, you, you finish the day with a couple of ticks next to those jobs and you go, oh, okay, well, it was it was a relatively successful day. I got I got through most of what it was that I was aiming to get through. So so what is your what does your weekly structure look like at the moment, just uh, in the last seven weeks? Uh, yeah, so basically just getting one one big uh, cross-training session in um, six days a week. Um, I take take uh, one of the one of the weekend days off just to just to relax and kind of um, more so just for a mental mental mm-hmm. regroup than anything. Um, but yeah, so most days I'm I'm sort of heading to the gym around nine fifteen nine twenty. There's another another woman in our group who's injured as well and doing cross training, so that's been great for me, um, accountability wise to arrange to meet with her for for our respective sessions and stuff like that. Even if we're not doing the same thing, it's just um, good to have that. So if you're having a lazy morning, you've still got that reason to get up yes. and go. Um, but yeah, so. Usually I'll I'll warm up, um, you know, fifteen or twenty minutes on the on the elliptical or the cross trainer, um, and then do a session in the pool, which lasts 
45 to 60 minutes depending on on what the focus is if it's a long straight longer swim or longer reps then it'll go the full hour if it's shorter like today i was doing kind of 50s and 25 so that's on the shorter end time wise but a lot more intense um and then out of the pool back on the cross trainer for 20 25 minutes or so for a cool down um and then monday tuesday thursday friday i'll go straight into um whatever strength strength work i have that that day that's been assigned and that's usually a sort of 45 to um 70 minute program depending on the day as well so um yeah i'd say all up i'm probably yeah leaving the house around nine and getting back 12 30 or one o'clock um which is a you know it's a long stint in the morning but i prefer it that way just to kind of knock it all out in one go and then be able to come home and relax for the afternoon and you know focus on what we're having for dinner that night um <laughs> so what do you say yeah, so, what's, so no. what's the time factor there so how long what, what does the pool session take did you say i might have missed something you said you were in the pool for about an hour uh, so what are you what are you doing yeah. for the other two uh, so warmer, I'm warming up on the on the cross trainer and cooling down for a combined oh, yeah. forty minutes there, um, sure. and then the gym is the gym session usually takes around an hour, give or take ten minutes. So um, yes, I know it's it's good. I'm I'm kind of enjoying it. Um, it's it's something that's a, a little different. Definitely looking forward to getting back into into running and incorporating that as a as the main part of my program, but. Um, yeah, no, it's definitely – it's been good to be able to do something and not just have to kind of navigate my way through through training and like we were talking about, having to feel it out or, or make sure that something's not overworking and stuff like that. It's nice to just have a a set form of training that's not going to – that you know is not going to bother it and you can you can try to press the needle a little bit if you need to. Yeah, I'm um, I'm good mates with a swimming coach over over here, and uh, man, it's amazing because I used to I used to look at swimmers and I was like, mate, like what an easy job. It's, there's no trouble on your joints. There's like it just doesn't look that hard when you're watching Ian Thorpe. And in fairness, it doesn't look that hard when you watch Ali Kipchoge either. But every now and then, I'll jump in the pool to do a swim, and I'm like, it's just a bit of humble pie for me because his arms going everywhere. The technical <laughs> side of swimming is not something that I've really mastered just yet. But it's amazing. I always find it's amazing how much fitness, fitness you can build up just through a swimming session, regardless of how fit you are. It was, it was a shock to me when in 2014 I left the distance running scene to go and train with with uh, Box Hill Hawks, which is just a, like an AFL. I don't know if you follow the footy. It's a VFL um, footy club yeah. over here in Melbourne. And I used to talk so much trash about footballers back in the day because I'd been disconnected with the sport for a while. And I was like, mate, I'll show these boys how to train. And I got down there and <laughs> the first couple of sessions, I was I just could not believe how hard they worked. Like I reckon it was on the on the edge of maybe too hard. And it was the same in the pool. Like I think there's an element for me of the technique that I'm swimming with just makes it like I may as well be swimming with a backpack on my bag because there's something going wrong there. But do you find the same? Like you can get out of a pool and you're not necessarily sore in your joints, but you just know your lungs have just taken a massive whack. And I mean, you, you said before, like the upper body size that you're carrying around is maybe a bit more than a marathon runner needs. Apart from big lungs <laughs> and broad shoulders, I always feel the next day like my, my body hasn't really taken that much of a beating. I feel like the first week of starting swimming, because obviously like – I think that's the other thing that we don't really consider when you get into cross training is like 
the idea of you get injured and then it's like, all right, I'll just hit the bike hard or I'll just hit the pool hard or something like that. I just, I think it's so funny to think of this concept that like we go from running 24-7 to then being like, oh, okay, I can just now swim 24-7. <laughs> it's like a completely different group of muscles. It's a different like system. It's it's crazy that we just jump right in and we're like, oh, we can do this. And then we're surprised when we're sore or we can't do something or we're like, we feel unfit doing it because it's like, no, nah, bodies aren't used to that. Like we're not, we're not going to be able to do that. But um, so, yeah, so the first week for me, I'm always like everything sore, my lungs, like you were talking about because it's a different breathing pattern and, and things like that, like, first week's always a struggle um but uh yeah now it's now it's starting to feel a bit more like it's not not one for one with with the same feeling as as my running training but it's it's definitely starting to i can feel like i'm able to get more of that feeling towards it um just once your body adapts a bit more to the to the motions of it and whatnot but um no, mate, it's fantastic. I just go to the local YMCA here, and it's uh, it's it's a very humbling experience <laughs> getting in the pool and having having some elderly women uh, <laughs> yeah. just glide, gliding alongside you as you're doing a, an all out all out rep. Um, so yeah, so they're they're really really keeping me grounded, and then I'm sure I'm making them feel good by by having <laughs> this young bloke who they're just flying alongside. So. Um, but yeah, so no, it's yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's something I've had to kind of navigate. But I've had you know I've had help. Alice has been been able to send me some sort of a template of, of things to do, and I'm able to apply apply that to directly to the pool and, and things like that. So it's um, yeah, no, it's it's been good. Um, I do think it's something I might try and keep loosely in my program moving forward like a swim once or twice a week um i feel like i always say this coming out of cross training and i'll never really stay on it but um i, I do think this time around I, I would like to more so for that because i'm realizing that that concept i talked about before it's like if i do get injured again like you want to and i want to keep be able to get back into it then i don't want it to be as much of a shock to the system as it as it always is in that first week so um yeah, but no, definitely, definitely a different, different group of muscles, different, different aspect of my lungs are getting used. So hopefully, I can apply that to the running when we get back into it. The second clip I wanted to share with you today is from episode one hundred and forty-two with Kate Galliott. This was a really fun conversation for me because, like her, I'm really passionate about our ability to get the best out of our body. She's really keen on helping us stay strong as we age. In this particular conversation, a lot of the chat revolved around just the ability to tune in to what our body is trying to tell us and not just quickly run to a medical professional at every single opportunity that there's a slight pain or slight niggle, though at times that's a good option. So today, I was, uh, or this particular episode, I was really excited to hear someone that I was on the same page about and, and, and to hear a lot of the information just make sense very practical very simple information so this is kate galliott this clip is taken from episode 142 oh for sure i my journey started when i was unwell and confused by that and frustrated by that i was quite athletic and sportsy and the whole thing as a child and young adult but 
I was always getting infections. I was always feeling run down and sick and injured. And my fitness was always tethered to injury recovery, kind of rehab hamster wheel, constantly getting on and off that. And, um, never really feeling good despite feeling fit and feeling quite like breakable and fragile and just not how I wanted to feel at 20 something years of age. And then compounding that with medical professionals, kind of sports doctors, medicine doctors, things like that saying, Oh, that's just normal. That's just normal. That's just how you are. Mm -hmm. And I didn't yet know what, obviously what I know now, but my 20 something year old brain was like, that can't be possible that I just like lost the genetic lottery and I'm, I'm on the way out already, like at 20 something, that can't be possible. And at the same time, I had just earned my degree in exercise science. And so I began my career as a personal trainer. And so I knew all these things about the body, but it wasn't like jiving with like, well, how do I make it feel good? This is like the, how to make a muscle grow and how to heal an injury. But then I keep getting injured. None of it was adding up for me. At the same time, I met these first two clients of mine who I talk about in my book, um, becoming unbreakable. They were like a gift because these two were older 50 late fifties and almost 60. And they were like, screw this notion of getting old. Forget this. No, like I want to, they wanted to hike mountains. They wanted to run marathons. They wanted to live with a capital L, but they didn't know the, how do I build a muscle tissue? How do I rehab an injury? How do we make things more resilient? And I did know that from a scientific perspective, but because of them, they, sh- they were like the living example of what I believed should be possible, but I hadn't yet seen somebody prove it, that, that too old is a total myth. This notion of I'm too old to do it, that's a myth. The notion that you're too old to feel good, myth. None of that is accurate. They were proving it. I got to practice on them by using my skill set of science and anatomy and kinesiology and all of these aspects of conditioning a body and went, oh my God, it does work. I can actually help someone feel like it's never too old to do something and they can feel invincible. What eventually I began to call unbreakable. Mm. And so I spent the next a long time, two decades, um, really building out my ability as a coach to help a wide array of individuals, lots of endurance athletes, people who like to run, lots of people who like adventure, lots of people who would probably self-identify as type A, who have hammered their way as far as they can go, but they keep getting hurt or they keep feeling run down or they just, they're they're hammering the wrong nail, but they keep hammering, right? Um, and so I've spent 20 years working with these folks, but along the way, of course, I worked on myself. And so I was able to cultivate methods and systems and principles that anybody can use to break free from this notion that bodies just fall apart as they age and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to feel bad the older you get and you should do less. And all of this really demotivating messaging that you're going to hear in your conversation with people who are your own age. Oh, you're too old for that. Oh, what are you doing? Of course, your knees are going to hurt. You're 40 now. Like you're going to hear it there. You're going to hear it in mainstream messaging, like advertisements and medical establishments. And so you really need to take the bull by the horns. And that's some of the stuff I teach is how to take your own bull by its horns and really change how your body lives and how you feel living in it. And so that's, 
that's what I do today. So I now through coaching and books and, you know, all the, all the goodness, that's how I try to share that message with people. Yeah, it's amazing. It was part of the reason I was so excited to have you on. And I'm, I'm fully aware of the fact I had a good look through your website and, and looked at, had a good look through some of your YouTube videos. And I'm just slowly, like only I heard about you for the first time about six weeks ago and have just gone down the rabbit hole of so much of what oh. you wanted to say. And, and just that idea of, you know, invincible becoming unbreakable, I, I thought really resonated with my audience as well, because obviously the distance running scene is renowned for, you know, people starting in their 20s. And as you say, you're gradually move through your 30s into your 40s and beyond and it's almost just accepted that the way the body goes is just gradually declines and there's nothing you can do about it and like I'm sure there's so many reasons for that maybe we can unpack that a little bit today but uh like one of the things that I notice in in Australia that I can only assume is really similar in the US is a lot of people seem to uh, though they're interested in developing their fitness and developing certain elements of their life we feel a little disconnected with the, the most natural ways to do it and I think you touched on the medical scene before and I've had some really interesting run-ins with um, you know highly highly what do you say qualified doctors that were just pointing me in the complete wrong direction and there was a few more natural more uh, I don't know like a lot simpler methods that I needed to apply and it's interesting for me I, I've really noticed that um, you know sometimes we overcomplicate really simple situations and as a result we think that our ability to be able to change this this sort of natural progression of our body just doesn't exist so well like from your perspective what do you think is going on there why is it that we've just come to believe that as we age the body's just got no other options but to break down well the cynical side of me that i try not to feed too much is that it's very profitable to let people mm. know that you break down and that there is a solution which will cost you or your insurance company money um, to do that. Now that's quite cynical. And I try really hard not to <laughs> live in that part of the world too much, but, um, here's, here's the reality of what I, th I think is going on. Um, humans are really good at complicating things, especially as we evolve in, you know, generationally, like modern humans are pretty sure they're a lot smarter than our ancestors, even though there's a lot of evidence to show that that isn't necessarily true. Um, but that's, that's our ego at play and that's okay. Uh, and we are smarter in lots of things, but not in all things. So we tend to think we're smarter as time goes on. And we tend to think if we can understand something with modern technology, then we understand it fully. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So what is the most common thing people do when they have pain? That's annoying enough that they're going to go see someone about it. They go see someone assuming I should probably get a picture of what's going on inside of me. I should probably get a picture of the tissue, the bone or the joint. And then they use that as like the end all be all for deciding all action plans henceforth. There is a time and a place to use something like a picture inside to look inside what's going on inside of you. However, What's going on inside of you is being influenced by a variety of signals that your body is responding to. I call it the signal response principle. And it says our bodies are always responding to the signals they receive. The interesting thing is you can look at a picture and find something there, a tear, an extra growth, whatever. And that may not have anything to do with the painful response that you're noticing and you may have no idea why that signal got there in the first place. In fact, I have some notes about this in my book. The amount of people who have, if we imaged their shoulder or their hip, who would have what we would call a problem with their shoulder or their hip, 
um, and that are, that have no pain, no symptom, they're completely asymptomatic is the majority. So in this, in this instance, if your only path is, Oh, something's wrong. I need to go know it by taking a picture and seeing what we see. Cause I can believe my eyes. And then from there, our path is, well, the doctor's eyes and my eyes say, yep, there's something there. Of course, the next avenue is, well, we should remove it. We should address it. We should do something about that thing that we see on the picture. But that negates something really, really important that, well, first of all, sidebar, pain is not always indicative that there's a structural problem and there can be structural problems, problems, not really a problem, an abnormality without pain. So pain does not necessarily equal something broke in the tissue. There can be a variety of other reasons for that. But also if our body is always responding to the signals it receives is the first signal your body needs to hear to be able to respond surgery. (laughs) What about movement? What about inputs like force, um, motion, rotation, um, ease, something that type a runners especially struggle with, like truly finding ease and getting out of that fight or flight response of going hard, training hard, always achieving. Those are powerful signals for people don't even know how much power they have by imparting forces into their tissues through very particular movements that can radically change how that tissue functions, how that tissue structures itself, um, how your brain understands that tissue and joint that is relative to it. Um, but that that's missing. It's like, we went from, I don't know what's going on. Let me use my eyes. Cause I can believe those, even though there's a million other things beyond that. And then let me jump to step number 47, which is let's do some surgery on this because everybody forgets just because you have surgery does not mean your problem will be solved. Unfortunately, there's time and place for all this. And none of this is like a referendum on medicine or sports doctors. There is a time and place for all of that. And there's some great work being done. We just put the cart before the horse and jump way ahead into thinking, oh, I've got to do this very like, to me, it's crazy. I don't want to say crazy in, in a negative way, but it's crazy to think the first thing I do is some invasive treatment. I, that's like the 40th step we would want to try. All right, next on these highlight clips, we've got Mr. Patrick McCown from episode 144. Now, this guy's the author of the book, The Oxygen Advantage. I was either halfway through it or just completed it at the time this episode was recorded and I was pumped about what he had to say. Uh, Specifically, he speaks about the physical impact of nasal breathing on your running performance. The episode goes into um, any confusion, any complaints, uh, any controversy around the subject. But here, he just shares a few thoughts on what it is that he thinks impacting our ability to breathe either effectively or not be able to breathe effectively throughout our nasal passages. So really interesting conversation. If you haven't thought too much about breathing when you run, I highly recommend you check this one out. But for a little taste test, let's hear this clip with myself and Patrick McCall. And I also, I often wonder as well, if, for example, if they're born at altitude or if they're spending a lot of time at altitude, has their body adapted to that, which in turn, then they've got better oxygen carrying capacity. So they can typically do more with less. So I think there's a combination of different things there, but yeah, there is a genetic influence. Caucasians don't have great nasal airways, um, especially, you know, person to person. And if you were a mouth breather as a child, 
it's likely that your nose is even screwed up more. Mm. Um, you know, we, we know that. We know that mouth breathing during childhood years, that the face doesn't develop the way it should do. And as a result, the airway can, can be compromised. That's really interesting. That's a, a subject we could touch on maybe a little later because I'd be interested to find out a, a few of the strategies that parents out there might be able to uh, yes. introduce. I've got a, I'm looking outside at the moment. I can see my wife walking along with my, my little two-year-old boy who just loves running around. So I'd love to be able to give him some sort of advantage going into it. But um, with the bold score, what I was really curious to find out and, and, and um, sort of unpack a, a little bit more is obviously you mentioned some of the, uh, the ability to develop that is genetics, like your natural foundation can be genetic. But um, some of the some of the practices that we can use is that is that simply through just developing our ability over time, um, you know, starting at a very slow pace, maybe a walk, then a slow jog, then gradually through more intense exercise, just breathing through the nose, our body's just uh, naturally developing that ability to be able to use the oxygen more more efficiently. That's it. That's yeah. it. But yeah. most people don't. They don't. Um... They, do, they don't unconsciously switch to nose breathing. You know, it's it's only if they start thinking about it or they hear about it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's as simple as that. If, if, if somebody was a gardener out in the garden working manually all day, if they just breathe it through their nose, they will improve their breathing from a biochemical point of view, from a biomechanical point of view. Their breathing then during rest will be slower. It will be lighter. It will improve their sleep. And it will also improve their states of mind. Because if you think of the autonomic nervous system, it's a balance between the relaxation, the rest and digest response and the stress response. But if the boat score is low, breathing is faster. And when breathing is faster in upper chest, we're more likely to be an increased sympathetic drive. Hmm. So by adopting even during rest, because I think the biggest thing that we can do here is to change states. If we know the connection between our physiology and the mind, and there's so much misinformation out there about breathing there's so much nonsense and you know i think the best thing to do is when you hear of a breathing technique is put it into practice and first ask well what's the physiology behind it what's the reason reasoning and rationale not just something that's pulled out of the sky because there's plenty of stuff pulled out of the sky when it comes to breathing you have to think what's it actually doing you know look at the oxygen dissociation curve look at the bore effect Think of the trauma on the airways as a result of mouth breathing. Um, and, you know, even during rest, if you want to downregulate, you could take a very soft breath in and a really relaxed and slow, gentle breath out, and even under breathing to the point of air hunger, which in turn is going to improve your tolerance to carbon dioxide. And with an improved tolerance to carbon dioxide, your both score is higher and your breathlessness during physical exercise is going to be lighter. So it's not just about how you breathe during physical exercise, but it's also being conscious of how you're breathing during rest, but also during sleep. You should never wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. But yeah, physical exercise is a great start, you know. It's really interesting. I actually, I learned this through the magician, David Blaine, when he was training to hold his breath a little. I saw a couple of interviews with him and that was the first time that I'd ever heard that the the problem when you're starting to panic for air isn't that you've lacked oxygen in your body. It's that the CO2 has built up so much in your body's natural response is, is to be able to get rid of that. And I think it might have been on Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan asked him the question about, um, all right, well, it's really interesting. So what do you do? And he said, well, for me, I just gradually learned to get more comfortable with that discomfort. And then over time, it's amazing 
how beneficial that can be. And I actually, I was I was running along here in, in Medford, Oregon, a couple of weeks ago, as I said, listening to your book. And um, I think I got a little bit excited with the pace because it's, it's been the first time probably since I started listening to your book, really, that I've, I've made the commitment to actually really commit to this nose breathing and give it some time. Because I think my issue was, like a lot of runners out there, I can imagine, is I, I make that transition from what's comfortable, from what I've known, to doing this nose breathing and realize that, oh my gosh, like this feels a lot harder. And I, my issue as well, which I didn't consider, which you addressed in your book was, uh, you know, if you're doing a really difficult session, there's going to be a stage there where it might be, especially initially, really difficult just to stick to that nose breathing. And during that training phase, during that adaptation phase, sure, open your mouth if you really need to or, or slow down a little bit. But my issue had been, all right, I, I was like, okay, my nose just isn't right for this. And I didn't allow those those changes mm. to take place. But it's yeah. funny, I always look back to my uh, my year eight computer teacher. She used to try and teach us to touch type. And I remember sitting there one day and I, I had the index fingers and I was going like this. And she was trying to explain to me, no, no, you, you put your fingers like this and then you can just gradually move around. And she goes, just trust me, stick to it for the rest of term. And if at the end of term it's not working, you know, you can call me a liar. But I did it and and she was right. Like she nailed it. Mm. And I was so glad I stuck to that initial discomfort. So I can see this in other areas of my life, in, in fact, every area of my life. Um, but I think just when it comes to seeing a temporary lapse in your performance in terms of time, it can be really hard for athletes to to see that through. Is, is I know in your book you've mentioned um, I can't remember his name, but there was a particular triathlete or cyclist who I think went through this phase. But I was I was just curious to know whether that's a regular occurrence with athletes that you've seen, and also would love to hear a, about a couple of athletes that have really stuck through and seen some really positive uh, results as a as a result of being consistent with that. Yeah, it's like I'll come back to David Blaine when he's talking about the breath hold. It's taught it's the discomfort signals from the diaphragm to the brain that terminates your breath hold. But of course, that's going to be influenced by carbon dioxide buildup and your brain sending increased sensations to breathe to the diaphragm. And then you have the discomfort signals from the diaphragm back up. So if you relax into that, and there's something very important about relaxing into the discomfort because you're training your brain not to react to discomfort. Suffocation is one of those. It's a very inbuilt mechanism. It's an inbuilt fear response in the human body. <clears throat> and in terms of building up resilience and stress, we don't want to do anything that's extreme. You know, like I've made plenty of mistakes with this. I've worked with people, many, many people face to face over 20 years. I've seen what can happen when breathing exercises, when they're not used correctly. I've put one person into accident and emergency. Um, I've put people, plenty of people into panic attacks. And I've had people coming in with chronic fatigue syndrome. I've completely floored them, you know, and that's been over the years. And it's just kind of gave me an insight into it then that with some people, I have to go nice and easy and just gently build them up according to that individual. But the benefits of it can be enormous. They can be tremendous with people with anxiety, panic disorder, Lower back pain, 50% of the population with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing. Asthma population, anybody with exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, sleep issues, um, physical exercise. We do breath holds as well. So breath holds are take a normal breath in and out through your nose, hold your nose and jog with your breath held. And you should be able to jog up to 80 pieces with your breath held and then let go and then get your breathing under good control. Don't expect it to do it straight off. 
So that's that's your upper limit of tolerance of breathlessness. We call that the maximum breathlessness test. So we have the bold score, which is functional breathing. And then for upper performance, it's the MBT. The MBT. Um, you'll see both of those tests anyway online. So coming back then to nasal breathing, it's not that we want people to go blue going for a run. You know, it's like some people can come back to me and say, Jesus, it was so difficult. It was almost like I was absolutely suffocated going for a run with my clothes. And I says, no, you know, do your best to sustain nasal breathing. You will feel a bit of air hunger. Once you have good control of your breathing, stick with that. If the air hunger gets too much, you can either slow down or breathe in through the nose and breathe out through the mouth. So you get rid of carbon dioxide from the body, which will help to alleviate the feeling of air hunger. But bear in mind, you do actually want to expose your body to that higher carbon dioxide because then you will reduce the chemosensitivity of the body to CO2. And then your ventilation is less for a given intensity and duration of exercise. And if the air hunger gets too much, you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. But then if you're slowing down in the pace, then you can go back to nose, mouth, and then nose, nose. So you can shift it up and down depending on your degree of breathlessness. But also think about your improving your bolt score. There's many people have been practicing this. We've many, many hundreds, thousands of people, like the book is sold. Like the book was written back in when, I don't know, I started writing that in 2012. And it was a four, three, three year right. Maybe it was 2011. And it was published, I think, in 2015, 26, now 16. I've since written a few more books after that. But the one that you talked about, the oxygen advantage is very much for kind of that sports performance. Like there's a man in it, Dr. William Hang. He's an orthodontist in Agora Hills in California. Um, I'm not sure what, how, what age he is now, but he's, there, he's definitely mid 60s. He runs Martins with his mouth closed. So, you know, and he's a, he's a, like, and, and doing pretty well with that. And his story is in the book. But if you Google him, Bill Hang, William Hang, he's an orthodontist. Face Focus is the name of um, his, his practice. But he's an orthodontist who understands about the airway. And that's why he is so religious about keeping his mouth closed because he understands the whole impact airway on your running, your sleep, and everything, and correct tongue resting posture, et cetera. There's plenty of others. Um, worked with some of the athletes from Notre Dame University back in 2016. They were sprinters now, track and field, four, 400 meter sprints. And I wanted to push these guys a bit. Young kids, great um, potential and really at the top of their game. So we had them do some of their sprints with the mouth closed. So yeah, it's a bit challenge. I know I don't normally do it with um with athletes but we just did to challenge and then i remember some of the drills that i had them do was it was a 400 meter sprint but i would stand on the 360 meter line when they see me they they were sprinting and then when they see me they had to breathe in and breathe out and hold their nose and sprint the last 40 meters without without breathing because what i wanted to do was i wanted to add the load onto the last 10 percent to get the body to make adaptations you know, there's research on this with rugby union players in Australia. Professional rugby union players getting them to do 40 meter sprints with breath tolling. And it increased their increased their repeated sprint ability from nine reps to 14.8 reps before exhaustion. And the control group who were doing sprinting with normal breathing, which normal breathing, but during sprinting is mouth breathing, no change. 
Um, if it came up by maybe one rep, but very little change in comparison to the, the experimental group who, who were doing breath tolls. So Tyson, there's something in it because there's something in it because it's an area that has not been tapped into. Mm. And, you know, yeah, that's why I would say to people, like, kind of just build it up. And it becomes comfortable. Now, bring a tish, tissue with you when you go for your run with your mouth closed. Um, your nose will drip. It'll run. That's just a part of the adaptation. All right. This next clip is from episode 92 of the podcast. It's with four-time Olympic marathon runner from here in Australia, Mr. Steve Monaghetti. No stranger to a lot of you. Uh, it was an absolute treat. I'd done a whole heap of running with Mona when I just moved to Ballarat in Victoria years before this episode was released. But nonetheless, absolute treat to hear his thoughts on all things distance running. With this particular clip, I wanted to ask him about his theory around the benefits of stacking up training and how we can do that effectively over time. This is episode 92, or a clip from episode 92 with Steve Monaghetti. I'm not sure whether I've falsely attributed this to you or whether it's from uh, Chris Wardlaw, but it's the phone book theory about just the, the layering of, of training as being like pages in the phone book. And you reminded me when you were speaking about durability and um, just your career where you, you know you hadn't really been impacted at all with with injury. And I was going to ask you a, a little bit about that. Firstly, um, you know, whether or not that was was yours or, or Chris's theory. And secondly, sort of what you attribute your your ability to um just keep on going. Cause I always hear someone who's remained injury free and I go, okay, they must be doing a lot of strength and conditioning, a lot of recovery work. And um that hour on a Thursday sounds like it must have worked wonders for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think Chris probably originally took the phone book, sorry, but I, I used to run with it a bit in my own um, speaking. Um, and, you know, I think it's a lovely story because we, I think we all, oh, kids probably don't know what a phone book is anymore, but in our day, you know, it was, it was a sort of an iconic thing. And, and I think we all remember the, the page, you know, you'd be able to flick through the phone book and it was so thin that, it, you know, if you rip one page out, it would just sort of float down like a feather. And yet if you had the Sydney or Melbourne yellow pages, you know, they were like a brick. So you could kill a robber if they were at your door. So I think that layering effect, so, you know, you put one page and, and um, you know, you, you, you multiply that. And if you're having interruptions, you know, the other, the other theory we use is the, the water in the well and if you're, or money in the bank. And if you're putting water into the well, then, it, you know, it tops up and hopefully it's overflowing because you've got so much training and that's when you're ready to race. But if you think about if you're injured or you're having time off, that's when the sun's evaporating that water and it's getting drawn out of the well rather or the water level in the well sinking. So I think that's a really good way of thinking about it because it means that any interruptions are detrimental to you, your consistency in that overall performance. And I can honestly say that, you know, I'm not sure why it was. Obviously, I'm pretty biomechanically sound. I'm really light on my feet. You know, I I think that, um, you know, not putting a lot of pounding through my legs really made a difference. But, you know, you probably know um, I, I saw a physio really early on in my career and to his credit, he said, look, you know, there's a pattern forming here. You know, you run a hard race, a marathon, you get injured, you come and see me, I fix you, off you go, you race, you know. And he said, why don't we sw switch that around and you come and see me before you get injured and we'll start trying to get a bit of a, you know, system going here that prevents you getting injured. And that's exactly what happened. And Pete Howley and, you know, I, again, I love telling the story of 
I got um, invited to the London Marathon in 1989 and they said you can have a business class fare or you can um, have two economy fares. And I said, oh, I'm not precious, that's fine, I'll, I'll have a couple of economy um, fares. And they said, oh, who do you want to take? And I thought, well, you know, I could take my Tanya, my fiancé, or, um, or Chris, my coach, or, you know, training buddies, Walshy Boyley and those guys. And so I took my physio and that's a fact. So <laughs> Pete Halley came with me and um, he travelled with me for 10 years, wrote my, my biography and, you know, we're great mates to this day and his ability to read my body was no doubt one of the reasons why I had the consistency. And incredibly, Chris Wardlaw was in Melbourne. I would see Pete Howley and he would have as much influence on my training as Chris would because Chris would set out my training and and I'd sort of do it to what um, I thought the standard he wanted. But if Pete Howley said, oh, look, you need to back off a bit because your legs are a bit sore or you've got this issue, then I would. And Chris respected that and and I think that's one thing I had over my career. I think I had clarity in, you know, my physio, I trusted implicitly. My coach, I trusted implicitly. And as, as I say, Pete Howley is still a good friend. I have a coffee with him every few months. Chris Wardlow, I could ring him tomorrow and I'd have a chat. Stephen Smith, my manager, you know, my accountant, still, you know, living in Torquay, retired now, but we still catch up. So that continuity of being able to get a team around me that I trusted implicitly and I, I did my it's a bit it's like a business lecture it's like you know I did my due diligence but then once I'd done my due diligence and decided that that person was the right person I trusted them implicitly and, and their judgment and they knew that you know they had their responsibility they took it seriously and then you know that was the team that I put together and it worked incredibly well and and, and the only other thing I, I think probably and we've already talked about how how special it is here in Ballarat I think the the variety of surfaces that I ran on here in Ballarat really helped. So in the bush, on you know fire trails, dirt tracks, and even tonight when I rode with Freeman, we we're on a gravel path, the Yarrawee Trail out to Magpie and back. So the variety of surfaces, up and down, undulating hills, just di- um, working different muscle groups in your body, I think was pretty significant. And it's a beautiful environment. And if you love the environment, and you're smiling on your face when you're out training. Well, that also helps as well, I reckon. Yeah, nah, you're right. And there's uh, there was plenty of banter to add to those group runs as well, wasn't there? I'm not sure if Nate Hardigan's still running around up there with you, is he? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's been a bit off and on, but I, I had a run with him. I hadn't ran with him for about a month and I caught up with him last week and it was like the conversation, that, you know, whatever we finished <laughs> on a month ago, he just picked straight up and away we went. And a bit like I remember uh, the other story I used to tell about Troopy, um, you know, every, people probably know Lee Troop, um, you know, my best mate and now lives in Boulder, Colorado, but he moved to Ballarat and trained with me for um, 10 years and he was a sprinter in a you know, or distance runner in a sprinter's <laughs> body because he was just mad. He was wild. I remember I think I knocked on his front door. I'd pick him up on a Sunday morning. I'd knock on his front door. I'm sure he was climbing in the back window <laughs> and coming out the front door when I was knocking on because he just got home. And some of the stories he would tell, and I, I, I'd always sort of, you know, we ran two and a half hours and I'd kind of I'd run over to his house about five minutes away and I'd we'd, we'd start the run and I'd kind of go, oh, so what happened last night? And about two hours later, I wouldn't have to say another word. I'd just run along and he'd just be like this for the whole time and we'd get the rundown of every every moment of the night and uh, very entertaining, filled in a long run, that's for sure. Oh, man, I actually I had him on here a while ago as well. And I'll tell you, I think it was the same story and I absolutely loved it. I said to him uh, at the end of the podcast, I go, mate, you're my favourite kind of person to speak to because I feel like that was the best conversation I had and I reckon I asked four <laughs> questions. 
yeah. We caught up on, we had a bit of a catch up um, the other night as well. And he's just, he's a ripper bloke. And, um, they're, and they're the things, you know, out of, I talk, you know, I've already talked about Pete Howley, Chris Wardlaw, Rod DeHyde and Troopy, you know, these, um, Stewie catching up with coffee. We haven't spoken once about a race result. And that's what I love about running for me. You know, I, I was a 14-year-old kid who my neighbour knocked on the door and invited me out to a running race. And here I am, that was 14, so what am I, 58? So here I am 44 years later and I have just been so fortunate to meet so many great people along the journey. And running's, running's the reason it's happened, but it's just the, the vehicle that's made those friendships and those fantastic times, the great experiences you have has been uh, been an incredible journey. Yeah. Mona, these guys that you're riding the bike with, are you are you coaching anyone at the moment or are you there as more of a mentor role for, for these, uh, well, I don't know, I guess it's a combination of both young and old in some of the names that you're mentioning? Yeah. So, well, Freeman's coached by Collis Birmingham and a lot of the other guys I ride with are coached by um, Julian Spence or Moose. So well, there's a bit of a combination and I, I'd probably mentor and advise probably three or four of them. They're... they're, they're uncoachable so <laughs> so uh, they use me as a sounding board and they're they're experienced enough you know they know what to do and so we just bounce ideas around but one great thing about COVID last year I um because I wasn't going to events and I had a bit of time on my hands and I had a bit of a go before at real coaching and it just didn't quite work and you know I had programs that I kind of wasn't um, really following up and they were getting sent out and it was, just wasn't working very well and so in COVID last year, I decided, and, and my son's doing um, exercise science, so I thought it might be an opportunity for him to do it, write a few programs, get a bit involved. And um, anyway, so I set up, I sent out a, a bit of a, uh, I think it was on Instagram, just inviting people if anyone was interested in getting some coaching. And um, I've got about 20 people that I'm coaching and it has been fabulous, absolutely terrific. And, and all ranges, you know, I've got one lady from just out the other side of Dalesford who walk runs and up to someone like um, Krishna Stanton, who's a Commonwealth silver medalist and um, in her 50s and going really well and has never really had an established coach and she's loving it. And just that I've really enjoyed. It allowed has allowed me to move on a little bit from my running. I, you know, I think I probably got a little bit obsessed again a couple of years ago. I was breaking those world records and just was sort of becoming really serious you know I wouldn't go if you ask me out for a beer the night I can't go I've got a race tomorrow and it was just impacting my life again I was getting a bit serious so I kind of backed that off a bit and it's this the coaching has allowed me to just you know pass on my knowledge and I take it very seriously I talk to most of them um, once every couple of weeks or um, you know sending programs I actually I've written a couple of programs today and I've taken a little while to get just just trying to get a what would I term it I'd term it running a marathon off less training because I'm I'm gathering that people want to do about 70, 80K a week and they want to run a marathon, which, to be honest, Tyson, it's not I, – I, I, I don't want to let people do it, but I've just got to relent because, to <laughs> me, you shouldn't do that because it's yeah. – you know, you're running 42K in one day and you're thinking you're going to run 70 for the week. Well, kind of doesn't match up, but I just realise now people have got lives. You know, I had no, I didn't have a life. I just ran. So <laughs> I realise now that, you know, it's part of the balance. I've written a, a, a couple of programs today that I'm about to send out to the group and just, you know, that I think will probably allow them to realise some of their um, dreams that, you know, I was able to do over my career. So to be able to pass that on has been something I've really enjoyed. And, again, it's that 
So human contact that I'm really enjoying, the social side and the, the conversation I'm having with these people and just I'm learning as much as they're learning. I learn about their lives and some of the things that they find useful and adapt to my coaching. And it's, um, it's been a real bonus for me out of COVID. Yeah, no, that's unreal. So did you say what you've, you've got 20 and you've sort of, you've sort of limited it at 20 or are you still taking athletes on? Because I can no, imagine there'd I'm, be plenty of people whose ears yeah. just perked up. Yeah, I, 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 to be honest, I'm struggling to keep up with the 20 because I'm on a couple of boards and I've got, you know, I was I was the um, uh, interim chair of the, the Australian Sports Commission for a while. So I've sort of got this, this, this other kind of area of my life where I'm on, you know, pretty... Um, Pretty heavily involved in in sport in other aspects, and 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 that keeps me really busy. But I love this because this is real grassroots. This is really you know where I'm at, and I love um, you know um, interacting with that group of people. So twenties probably, in fact, it's probably slightly too many. But I'm I'm, I'm hoping, and if there's people out there listen to this, and I am coaching, I think yeah, no, he's doing a pretty good job, and I, I take it very seriously. So I think that's about right. All right, next in line, we've got Benita Willis. This is from episode 118. Benita Willis was formerly World Cross Country Champion. She was the Australian marathon record holder for a long time. One of the best marathon runners in the female division that we've ever seen over here. And she's recently moved, well, not so recently, but uh, she'd made the move into the running coaching world now. So in this clip, I wanted to pick her brains about the move and about how she structures that. It was just really interesting from a, a runner's and coach's perspective, to hear about how one of the all-time greats from here in Australia has made the move into the world of coaching. So, how do you how do you yeah. sort of do? Do you have a, a little bit of a structure as to to how you get your head around what what uh, athletes in what phase of their training? Yeah, like generally, I put in their sort of biggest goal race into the. Pro- so I use Train Peaks in my programming, and we I put in the biggest races. Um, and then any sort of lead up races and then plan back with all the sort of specific long runs if it's a marathon or from the longer runs back until where they are now um but look if it's a if it's say if it's someone that's in their 50s and 60s um generally I give them a bit more cross training um because we know you know bone density decreases as you get a bit older and and if they've got a history of, of stress fractures I'd sort of give them more cross training as well so yeah, I do plan back from the goal race, but it really depends on the person and, you know, and and their history and their running history as well and things like that. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's so it's very – and like I, I like your train driver as well, I have quite a few people that are sort of nurses that work through the night. Um, you know, I've got a guy up north that, um, that does really, really hardcore shifts, so he has five rest days in a row when he's working. And then, yeah, then he has all these days for training. So – it's sort of um, just structuring it to suit what they're doing, but also working back from from their main goal. And some people, they don't know what they want to do. Or, you know, I've got some people and their main goal is Gold Coast Marathon next year, which is July next year. So it's a long way away. So, you know, at the moment, you just sort of do a bit of training to just get through Christmas and, the, and January. And then you look at some lead up races to Gold Coast Marathon and start that, you know, marathon prep three months out. So, it sort of really all depends on, yeah, what people specifically are targeting. Um, so, and then, yeah, working back. But, yeah, it's just one of those things. I, um, I, I've been teaching some of the Athletics Australia Rec Running um, Level 1 coaching courses. And, um, yeah, it's, it's all like when I explain different things to, to people just learning how to coach and to become a coach, it's sort of a lot of it, it it's planning training, but it's also that person, like that um, skill, the skills to be able to have a conversation with people and understand what they mean. And, and get feedback each week and um, 
and how you relate to people and how you understand their actual their situation I think what make is what makes you a good coach rather than just knowing what sessions to set to um so you know yeah and it's just just one of those things that if you don't pick up on things um you know if you don't have that sort of um that that way with people um sometimes it's easy to just sort of just keep setting stuff but they're they're not really responding to the training or getting what they should be getting out of it so how you communicate with people you know there's so many great coaches that are they're not good athletes they've never been good athletes but they're great coaches because of that relationship with people and, and how they sort of can structure things and and how they can get people in their mind to perform it as well as they can as well um so it's sort of there's so many, yeah, so many different things going into coaching that it's it's hard. I mean, obviously you have to know what training to set um, and things like that, but there's a lot more to it than um, than how you structure their sort of weekly plan. But like everyone I coach, I never write training more than a week ahead because, you know, people get sick, things come up, they might have a really busy work conference, they need two days off. So they tell me that the week before I write the training, um, I've got to have two days off and so then I can sort of give them sessions on a different day or um, change the long run, run around if they're traveling for a day to get back home from something. So it's sort of, yeah, it all sort of changes, but that major goal um, that people have is the one that you sort of always structure back from. Um, and, you know, it, you've got to keep people injury free and, and things like that as well and really enjoying it. So, you know, you've got to have those, those tra- different sort of phases of the year mapped out as well. So you can't sort of train I tell people I coach, you can't be so focused on training and racing and, and you know, you've got to get this done. You can't be like that for 12 months a year. So you've only got, you know, a few time periods per year where you can be really focused on an event or your training. And, you know, you can be fairly focused all the rest of the year, but you can't be like this is the be all and end all because you get to a point where you just break down. So I always tell people mentally and physically you can't, it's, it can't go for 12 months a year. So even if I'm coaching that person for 12 months, they do have periods of time where they're having a week off um, or, you know, they're having an easy week or um, things like that. So, um, yeah, and I know Brad Beer, who's a physio um, down here, he's got the Pogo uh, up here, he's got the Pogo, uh, Pogo physio and um, the performance show. Yeah, so he's sort of, he's, he's he, yeah, he's, he's a really good guy. And there's studies that show taking a week off running um, probably every, two, depending on the person, two to three months um, helps with um, bone stress injuries so it just helps your body to really really recover so we do plan that in particular people's training as well so it's good to have a bit of a scientific knowledge as well and then knowing the person's history with with stress fractures and things like that too um, but yeah it's it is a bit of a puzzle it's like a puzzle but you put all the pieces together <laughs> that's so true and lucky last in the lineup for today is the great man himself, Mr. Matthew Fox. Now, this is a more recent one from episode 173. Now, if you don't know Matt, he's the creator of Sweat Elite, currently on the hunt to break two hours 20 for the marathon. And it kind of shocked me how much I enjoyed this podcast. I knew it was going to be a good chat. I'd known Matt for a long time. But just his insight, his thoughts, uh, his approach to both his training and what he's doing with Sweat Elite, the YouTube channel, the podcast, and everything else that he's doing was just really enjoyable. And so this one, uh, whenever someone asks me about my favorite episodes now, this one's right up there with it. So this is from episode 173 with running coach, podcast host, and creator of Sweat Elite, Matt Fox. And what I like about it, as much as I like hearing about the training and the running and the questions, 
I like seeing the different locations. Like, I just reckon seeing yeah. the different, like, oh, these guys are in Kenya. This is where the Kenyans train. Wait, this is Kip Kano Stadium. What the heck? Like, it, it's just, uh, I, I think that's really enjoyable. I was trying to put my finger on exactly what I like, but I think there's probably four or five factors or, or four or five things that I really enjoy that aren't necessarily just related to running and um, and and session structure. It's just, yeah, you seem to have tapped into a real sweet spot. So have you got... I think Izzy was telling me that you've got different videographers working for you in different locations or like how does the team element of it work? Are you doing it all by yourself? Have you got people editing? Because it looks like it would be a a fairly big undertaking for for one man. (laughs) Yeah, just quickly on the locations part, um, it's funny. I never really thought about that until someone randomly said uh, early on in the channel, um, they commented on it saying, I love pretty much what you just said. They said, I love the workouts and I love meeting the people, but I really like seeing the locations that you're training at because, and I also, I've had a lot of comments about that over the last year and a half. And, and oftentimes, cause people, people oftentimes think I, I want to go to Flagstaff, but all I can see online is some basic pictures of the trails, but watching your videos, I can really see what it's like to train in Flagstaff properly. And it's a really cool byproduct and sort of like, um, secondary reason why people watch the video. So it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because um, it's not, nothing that really ever crosses my mind when I film that, oh, maybe just the background and the scenery is is interesting to people. But um, it definitely is when it comes to Kenya, Flagstaff, Boulder, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, so in terms of the team, uh, yeah, so we, we actually don't have any full-time staff. I'm the only one. We've just got a lot of contractors that I'm connected with around the world. Very lucky that a lot of uh, professional videographers in the running and triathlon scene have reached out to me over the last year and a half. I've put a couple of Instagram posts up looking for people that people have responded to. Um, but we basically work on video by video, uh, you know, project by project basis. So I'll say to a videographer in Flagstaff, okay, we've got XYZ athlete that wants to do this workout and be filmed. Would you be up to doing it on this day? And each each project is just the same. So they film the workout, they edit the workout themselves. Um, they know the style because there's sort of a, a, a guide that I've put together that people people read and, and they know the basic style. And if they've reached out to me in the first place, they've probably watched the video and they probably know what it looks like. Um, and yeah, that's how it works. And then I just pay them for that particular video. And now we're doing more video series. So we're doing like a eight-part series on one particular athlete leading into one race or one event. So that videographer would then have the entire series to work with that athlete. So it's a little bit more of a commitment. So uh, so that's how it works. And um, <clears throat> I don't think we'll ever transition to really needing someone full-time because the, tr- the tricky thing that I'm currently tr- dealing with now, which is a bit of a strange problem to have, is that we probably have the ability to produce a lot more content, but I'm not really sure if that would be a good idea. Um, because you know the, the the market and the the amount of people that are interested in these videos in the grand scheme of things is pretty small. Uh, we're talking about maybe a few hundred thousand in the world would actually want to watch these things. And if you do a video every day, it's hard to keep up with that. I mean, we have actually had periods of time where we've done sort of a, a five to six a week, and we had we didn't have the best response to it. People were sort of like, it's just an overload of content, and it's it's hard to keep up with what you're doing. And I think the two to three a week is ideal. So rather than doing more quantity, we're looking at sort of just making the videos better <laughs> in a simple mm. sense. Um, and so right now I'm actually really studying and trying to understand. I'm looking at other triathlon YouTube channels and running YouTube channels and trying to go, okay, well, what can we do better within these videos? Like how can we actually 
make these videos better quality? Like what are the questions that we can ask athletes that are going to make this more interesting? What are the what are the mistakes that we're making in videos that we can improve on? How can we maybe edit these down to be shorter but more more appealing and more interesting? So these are the questions I'm asking myself now rather than working on uh, quantity. I'm working more on how do we improve our quality of video and luckily expanding into triathlon where we haven't done a lot of video yet I think that's a really um, important question to ask right now as we're venturing into a new space with new uh, you know, new things to think about because filming a bike session, a swimming session is quite different, especially a bike session, is quite different to filming a running session. So it's almost like we're starting from scratch with the triathlon in a way, even though we have already filmed some triathletes doing running workouts already. Um, so I, I'm spending many hours actually of, of my weeks looking at the best content in triathlon. So uh, anyone listening that knows triathlon content would know Lionel Sanders is, is the big one. Uh, Daniel Bachegaard is, is another really, really good triathlete that has a great channel. So I'm watching episode by episode of their stuff and, and jotting down notes being like, yeah, we need to do this, we need to do that. That that video is doing this better than we're doing it. So um, so that's, that's what's on my mind right now. And I'm trying to then share those thoughts and insights with the other videographers out there that so that they can incorporate into their videos too so so yeah it's exciting um it is a big undertaking but um i love it man i just uh, i really enjoy it and uh yeah we, we've we've briefly exchanged messages you know here and there over the last decade when we've been uh, noticing each other doing entrepreneurial things so uh i appreciate you reaching out and asking these questions but uh yeah it's uh it's 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 a it's a big undertaking but i'm, I'm enjoying it for sure and i, I can't complain when i you know, wake, wake up in Tokyo and, uh, and I mean, there's whole other challenges involved in the travel that people don't think about, like, uh, like sleeping consistently and stuff. So, uh, you know, those things people don't really, um, factor in as well, but, um, it'd be interesting to see where we're at in two years, uh, for sure. I think with the, with the triathlon being front of mind as well. So, um, we'll, we'll see. Uh, it's exciting, man. It's exciting. So what you got a couple of, you're in Tokyo now, you said you've got a couple of days <laughs> left there before you head to Berlin, was it first? Yeah, Berlin uh, on the 10th. So Tokyo Marathon is this weekend uh, and then we'll go uh, – I'm heading off on, on the on the Friday to Berlin where we're doing our first project with Nike. Um, so Nike are launching their Vaporfly 3 and we're going to do some videos with the Berlin Track Club where they're going to be rolling out the Vaporfly 3 on their channel. Uh, yeah, stoked to be, to be doing that with Nike and hopefully there's some more stuff with them coming as well. So, um, so yeah, that's super exciting and uh, – um, that'll be on the channel towards the end of March as they're preparing for the Berlin half. Um, and so this is the, the the position we really wanted to be in where we're able to show workout videos but then also incorporate it with like a shoe rollout because everyone's so fascinated by the uh, – I'm not sure if you've if you've yet really ventured down the space of the whole super shoe, um, you know, uh, game because that's a whole other thing that's going on in the sport right now as well. So. Um, yeah, hopefully people find those videos interesting and it's also really important for us to find the right balance between creating the original content but it not being like too much of an advert for Nike. Mm -hmm. That's something I'm really trying to trying to think about as well now uh, because I, the last thing we want is for people to think, oh, they had this really cool channel going and there was original unique content and then all of a sudden it's like this advertising board. Like we, we want to avoid that at all costs. So, so yeah, when I'm editing now, I'm really making sure, you know, we don't want there to be too branded we want it to be branded just enough so that the brand gets enough out of it but it's it still seems like it's um pretty pretty original yeah awesome man oh dude seriously i've, I've left this uh, uh double inspired double inspired for my marathon career and for the uh the future of sweat elite dude you're the, you're the kind of guy that i i think with, with the passion like that yeah you, you mentioned i can't remember on air or off air but with the um 
I like talking to people who've had a swing and said, all right, well, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. Oh, what about – and just keep getting back up. And it's uh, it's cool to see something take off like it has, brother. So I'm, I'm pumped to to watch the next 12 <laughs> months and beyond. And, uh, man, we'd love to have you back <laughs> on. Like we, Even if it's just to talk about marathon training and running and stuff like that, it feels very easy to talk. And, and people uh, who listen to this seem to love the marathon talk. So um, yeah. it's an open platform for you, brother. So if you ever want to come on and, and just go back and forth, let's do it. <clears throat> Yeah, for sure, man. I appreciate that very much. I mean, I've, yeah, I've definitely had a, like, like you, you know, had a lot of swings and a lot of misses and, uh, you know, I could talk for hours about all the failures, but when it comes to marathon talk, um, yeah, I'm always keen to discuss that. Just don't ask me about muscle cramping. Anything else I'm, I'm, I'm all here for. I don't know how to solve the muscle cramps. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm more than happy to, to come back on at some point and talk about, you know, things I've, um, I've, I've learned in the marathon training space and more, more probably relating to pros that I've, 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 um, been been filming and and how they've been preparing because there's a there's a big spectrum of approaches to, to marathons um you know we're currently doing a video series with richard ringer who's the european champ from um from the european championships last year from germany and he, he's run 208 and he doesn't do more than 125k a week which is really interesting he does a lot of cross training though so that's a completely different approach and uh you know after this video series where i speak more with him about um his lead up to the hamburg uh marathon I'd be more than happy to share more insights about about that. So, yeah, no, um, I appreciate the offer, man. I'd be good to come back on at some point soon, maybe after after London. Um, we'll we'll see. But uh, yeah, all the best in your next uh, next few months, getting getting marathon fit. And uh, I, I will say that with the concern around the around the misses, just just tell her that you know you you can get you can get that stuff back later. It's just a <laughs> short period of time where we can run a quick marathon. So <laughs> that's a yeah. good point. That's a good point. I'll see yeah. if I can sell it to her. All right, brother. All right, thanks yeah. a lot for coming on. Cool, man. Thanks so much. See you later. See everybody. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com.